This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to Kurt Vonnegut Radio. This is Gabe Hudson, and this is my podcast. Today, I am super excited because we've got the amazing Jen Tobb, acclaimed author, legal scholar, and most importantly, at least in my humble opinion, podcaster extraordinaire. That's right. Jen Tobb, host of the Trailblazing Books podcast, Booked Up, is in the house. Now, before we get into my convo with the amazing Jen Tobb, a couple of things. Number one, I want to thank all of our paid subscribers to Kurt Vonnegut Radio because my paid subscribers, you wonderful, big-hearted people, pay for my groceries. Through your kindness and support, I get to eat while I make podcast episodes for you. And I just want to give you a heads up. We've got some amazing guest writers coming up very soon on Curve on Get Radio. Like, for instance, Jason Zinneman, the New York Times critic at large. But perhaps most importantly, in my opinion, Jason has been writing the New York Times comedy column since 2011. That's right. Anything you think you know about Mark Marin or any deep feelings you might have about Dave Chappelle. Has he been slipping? Did he fall off? All of that stuff. Jason Zinneman has the most intelligent, provocative, astute insights on all these individuals. We've also got coming up writer and cadet of Cafe Ann on Substack fame. Everybody loves Cafe Ann. She's writing about New York City and the people there in a way that's never been done before. We have renowned novelist Lincoln Michelle. He also writes the beloved Substack Countercraft. We've got the renowned novelist and nonfiction writer Samantha Hunt. We've got exquisite author and famed editor at Norton, Jill Bielowski. We've got M.S. Rothwell, who writes his beloved Substack Cosmographia. We've got Daniel Gumbiner, novelist and editor of The Believer, coming up on the show. Plus, we got three or four individuals who I'm working on to get as guests who are such big names. I don't want to jinx it by mentioning their names. So my question to you, do you think all that work and me getting all these amazing writers and creatives to show you what's inside their heart and mind is worth $5 a month? I think we both know the answer. Honestly, I should probably be charging $100 a month for this podcast. But instead, I make it free for everybody. Well, that's only because the paid subscribers make that possible. So do the right thing. Become a paid subscriber so that I can buy groceries and eat while I make podcast episodes for you. Okay, so now back to my very special guest on the show today, Jen Todd. Maybe you know Jen from her frequent appearances on MSNBC or CNN. Maybe you know Jen because she had one of the all-time great Twitter feeds before it was bought by the big idiot. Or maybe you've read her most recent critically acclaimed book, Big Dirty Money, Making White Collar Criminals Pay. Or maybe you know her from her podcast, Booked Up, which has an all-star lineup of guest writers, such as Mary Trump, Wajahat Ali, Lita McCullough Zaleski, Maggie Smith, Kathy Griffin, Ali Velchi. The list goes on. To me, 
Jen Taub is a personal hero, but she's also a friend. Now, I have a secret theory about Gen X that the best and most dynamic and most potent of us Gen Xers are women. And Jen is someone who I would present as Exhibit A to support my theory. I am a huge fan of your show, booked up with Jen Taub. <laughs> and you've written nonfiction books with a real strong moral conscience. My goal is really to translate who you are as podcaster, important legal expert on what is happening. I just like to comment on things. I was more restrained or I think intentionally repressed because I came through a corporate world and also the legal profession where restraint is better. And then I think what changed for me... I guess there were two inflection points. I think the first one was when Sarah Palin was the VP nominee, or BVP candidate, right? Remember this? Yep. Oh, with, with incredible granular detail. <laughs> and how upset I was. She had one good zinger. I think it was at the Republican convention right yeah. after. And she said to slam Obama, what's a community organizer? And I was like, oh, gosh, are we in trouble here? That was like in 2008. And I think I had joined academia from my last job at Fidelity Investments around then. And I was always so worried, you know, if I got a footnote wrong or had a typo in a paper, and it was just like the level of shame. And I still remember a typo I had in something I'd written. But the level of shame I felt for not living up to what my standard of excellence was, which I honestly still don't live up to. Right. And then I looked at someone like Sarah Palin. Let me say it differently. The imposter complex that I had before, I thought, well, you know what? That's so self-absorbed. If I'm trying to go out there and not ever embarrass myself, then how can I actually make a change in the world? I need to grow a thicker skin. And if I believe that my values reflect the values of other people and I want to share those in the world, then I need to be less egotistical and focused on my own obsession with perfection. I always thought if I could achieve a kind of shield around me, then people would take me seriously. And that kind of worked a little bit, worked really hard and got into an Ivy League college from the Midwest. I did all these things. To, it wasn't you like went to Harvard Law School. I mean, you have. Yale undergrad, blah, blah, blah. And I, yeah. but part of it was because I actually like to read and achieve in that kind of way. But part of it also was to build this armor because I always thought that you had to buy into those systems or if you didn't and people didn't take you seriously, they would just say it was sour grapes. And then the catch 22 is when you actually achieve those. Now everyone thinks you're sort of arrogant elitist. And then like, well, there's no sweet spot. And no matter what you do, someone could criticize you. So give that up, do what's right, build coalitions and just say what you need to say. So that was the first inflection point. But that was only just not to be afraid to publish articles. You know, but that's and then, a huge deal. Like imposter syndrome, so relatable. When I was teaching at Princeton, I literally was just waiting for the cops to show up and put me in handcuffs and be like, you don't belong here. Time to get you out. So what were you teaching at Princeton? Uh, creative writing. I was at, in Austin at the University of Texas, had been in the Marines to help pay for the G GI Bill sure. and had a wonderful professor, Ben Marcus, who's at Columbia now. We're still real close. And he really was a life-changing professor, tuned me into all this contemporary literature. I ended up going to the MFA program at Brown, which was like my entree into the Northeast elite stuff and really was very lucky. I had a lot of success. I'm going to be really frank with you. Like, I'm a high school dropout. I don't think I was a typical one. Like, I was like the star of the soccer team. For me, it's like sure. I had read Crime and Punishment, and I was like, okay, this is all phony. Let me get out of here. 
But then I transferred to community college, went to college, but subsequently I've taught at Princeton. I teach at Columbia. It's been a real wild experience. I hate that you would ever feel insecure about that. I think that I was always feeling like if I didn't have these institutions backing me, I was nothing. And yet I realized later, I think in retrospect, that at my high school, the teachers recognized something in me. So there was a combination of hard work, people saying, she looks successful. I want to support her because we want to have this person go to a good school. And not a lot of luck, but I think it really felt liberating when I broke out of that. The other point after the Sarah Palin, I think the big change was when when Donald Trump was elected, because I felt like I had always bent over backwards, not to ever, how do I put it? It felt like cheap or de classe to ever call someone out on their political party affiliation. Right. I used to believe I was above those kinds of labels and I would focus on the issues. And in good faith, I thought that I had comrades and colleagues across party lines. And when I had something critical to say about a Democrat, you know, they'd often say, I'm really glad that you're not partisan. I'm like, I call him as I see him, blah, blah, blah. Right. And then when Trump was elected, I suddenly saw this kind of allegiance to him. Nothing he could do was wrong. I felt like I was stabbed in the heart. Like I felt like I was the dupe. And I also recognized because... Trump had gone to Twitter. I wasn't barely on it. I decided that's going to be where the discourse is. So I'm going to go there. Yeah. And that's when I started to be really active there. And I blew my chances. I had been nominated. My stuff was on Schumer's desk for a position. Wow. And, uh, and the administration, un unrelated to Donald Trump, it was going through prior to that in one of the agencies. Let's just put it that way. And that's super I kinda, cool. I mean, I think I look back on it and go, wow. And it was something I would have really wanted to do. But I just assumed when Trump was elected that it wasn't going to happen, even though they often pair a Republican and Democrat. And so I started getting very anti-Trump on Twitter. And that's when some of my friends who had put my name forward in this ecosystem of things were like, hey, so you tweet a lot. And I'm like, yeah, I do. I'm like, well, I'll tweet, but I won't go on television. How's that? But I felt like I was letting down people on the left because I wasn't keeping my mouth shut because there are people who literally stopped publishing, shut down their social media, erased them to get positions. And this is when I think I figured out who I was. I felt like some of my best mentors were giving me correct advice, which was, you're never going to get a job like this if you keep doing this. And I literally had one of these sort of Huck Finn moments of like, well, I'll go to hell then. And it was so hard because I had my ambitions, because I'll admit I wanted this job. The job wouldn't just be to help people. It would actually be furthering my career. And the choice was, do I silence myself for a year and maybe get this job? Or do I just say, fuck it? I think I can add more value. And also, it's not even add more value. Forget about what the world says. I felt like I was suffocating. Like I am someone who has to express myself. And I thought I'm not putting myself back in a box. It was one of the hardest things that I ever did. And I don't regret it at all. It was the yeah. best thing I did. And so through that process, I realized there are a lot of people who have much more freedom to say what should be said, who didn't use their voices because either it could be the ambitious kind of thing I was talking about. Or it could just be they just don't want to make waves and have people look at them because it's not the norm. At some point, I thought, okay, so I'm not an idiot, but I won't be fully respected, I thought, by a bunch of people whose respect I actually would want. And I thought, you know, oh, well. Right. And it turns out it's worked out for me. In, in such of, a beautiful way, if oh, I may say you. so. I mean, on so many different dimensions, like you're super present, you are building vital community curating, dispensing invaluable information and insight about what is transpiring. And really, when I listen to that story, what I hear is you're a truth teller. You had the truth to tell. 
And yeah. all of these situations were conspiring to make it so that you had to, as you say, suffocate or keep that in. And yeah. at a certain point, you say, F it. I will serve the truth. And as you said, even earlier in your life, you would call shots as you saw them. You'd be critical of a Democrat. You, right. you just want to tell the truth. I'll go back to elementary school and I'll tell you other stuff. Like, this is who I am. I wouldn't say I have no filter because I think I felt like I had no filter. It just meant the world I was in, even speaking out at all, maybe seems like you're transgressive. Right. This doesn't come from my family. It comes from just the world. Maybe it was this Episcopalian ele- elementary and high school I went to, whatever, you know, it's private school. But do you think I it's remember, Gen X? Oh, it could be Gen X too, yeah. right? And having parents who were silent generation parents, not baby boomers, right? When I was in second or third grade, my school had a school play every year. I think that the music teacher said to us, and she was just lovely, they told us who the cast was for the play. I don't remember who they said it was. And I raised my hand. She was like, yes, Jenny, show up. I'm like, yeah. I said, why is it always the same people who get the lead roles? I look back on this, and apparently she said to me, the effect of it was, that's a terrible thing to say, and that's really mean-spirited, and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, felt so bad. And I, I must have said something to my mother because... I remember maybe a few days later, she gave me an apology in front of the whole group because I went home and I was crying because I was wow. like, because I'd been such a good kid. Like, I remember when Aaron Copeland, the musician, was coming to give some sort of talk and our teacher was going to give him a book that we all made. And I was helping draw the pictures. And so I was like, how could you reprimand me in front of the other kids? But I think what I was calling out was some people got to be the star parts and some people got no roles. And I think I was learning something about society. There's other stuff I did. I staged a, a walkout at one point when there was a substitute teacher with Jim and I didn't like how they were treating us. And so when they left the room, I'm like, let's get out of here. Is that elementary school? Yeah. Okay. I was, that is incredible. That is. I was a good kid. Yeah. The thing is, I got away with shit because I think I just. Now, this is the 70s, and the teachers probably wanted to stick it to the man anyway. You know, right, they right. probably thought it was funny. But sometimes I took it too far, I think. I would read a lot on my own, and I start to really love Henry James. Absolutely love narrative. I love reading literature. I came to the conclusion, another sad revelation, that there's a difference between being an incredible reader of fiction and being capable of writing fiction. And they're just absolutely not the same thing. And I think that's okay. And so maybe the reason why when you say to me, and I get like tears in my eyes, you think I've done such great stuff. I walk around the world thinking, well, you really are a failure. Oh my gosh. <laughs> but, because I get that, uh, but yeah, yeah, no, yeah. But then later, the only thing that makes me feel not like one, I think finally getting some books published, I mean, that was huge. But the biggest thing for me, I think, this podcast for me, doing yeah. Booked Up, because all I ever wanted to do when I was a kid was just sit around and read books and talk about them. And talking with the authors is like heaven, because I want to know how they put this together, what they were thinking. I love yeah, that. I'm so happy for both of us that we are doing this at a mm-hmm. time when the so-called podcast industry has constricted somewhat. And then you have nonfiction writers on, but you also have novelists on. And even in your show notes, you're like, I could tell you what part of Proof Rock is my favorite or something like that. You're bringing a literary aesthetic to your conversations and Mm -hmm. you have incredible guests. You just had Michael Lewis. I loved the interview with Connie Schultz. Oh, I love her. Um, By the way, if novelists, every single novelist I have had, though, has written nonfiction. So even A.M. Holmes. So that's my hook. Because I feel like I want to do something a little bit different. Right. Well, I wrote a novel and a collection of short stories published with Kanaf. It's like a lot of dreams come true. Sure. But this podcast is 
where my heart is in the same way that it's where your heart is. So and tell me why. I'm so interested in people and I'm really proud of my friendships. They go back a long time and it's really based on conversations and telling the truth. To me, hearing from someone what their truth is and understanding is of such great value to me. And it's just emotionally rewarding. Like when I'm assembling the episodes, I do the production. It's easy for me to cry when I'm listening Ah. and thinking about what this person's saying. I feel like it's the best thing I can do to be of service right now to our culture, to our society, which is in great jeopardy. I love that you're saying that. And I do think these kind of conversations are the webbing or the glue between all of us. And I think that it's not proof rock. It's the other T.S. Eliot poem where there's that line about the piano. Something like this person here is a mechanical piano. I'm just going to Google it so I can read this to you. It's really hard just to Google T.S. Eliot. Okay, here we go. It is Port of a Lady. I love this. The reason why I I, I like your podcast and my podcast is because we've spent, and then I'll read the, the poem to illustrate this. I think that so much has become a fight. Everything is a persuasive argument and someone's going to win and someone's going to lose or someone's going to be like, we hate Trump, which, you know, he's awful and everything, or we right. love him. or That discourse is not, if I wanted to watch a fight, I'd watch a football game. There's just this impoverishedness. Ever since COVID and beyond, we've just been impoverished, and I wanted to rebuild that. And I think I started this podcast. I wanted to do this for a while, for a few years, because I realized when my second book came out, there weren't that many opportunities to talk to people about it. And I thought, I want to be that opportunity for people. But the second reason was, as soon as Elon Musk bought Twitter, that social media was just not going to be the place anymore. And I thought, maybe I can do the podcast. Unfortunately, I met the Politicon people. But let me read this part of the poem, because this is why... I like the podcast. So it says, I take my hat. How can I make a cowardly amends for what she has said to me? You will see me any morning in the park reading the comics and the sporting page. Particularly, I remark, an English countess goes upon the stage. A Greek was murdered at a Polish dance. Another bank defaulter has confessed. I keep my continence. I remain self-possessed, except when a street piano mechanical and tired, reiterate some worn-out common song with the smell of hyacinths across the garden, recalling things that other people have desired. Are these ideas right or wrong? That's lovely. I don't think I've known that passage. Oh my gosh, the whole poem is, I just love T.S. Eliot. And again, it's so funny. I think we all know that he was a raging anti-Semite, you know, but, but I'm Jewish, but I can still love his poetry. I can't he is a product of his era and people today still have hateful views. And I wonder whether his views would have softened or if he was expressing a kind of prejudice that he didn't always feel and that could have changed, but I'm not going to cancel him. It's fascinating to hear how your mind works on that topic, I must say. So what? Why? I think of you as a public intellectual, you have a deep appreciation for art and literature and so forth. You are Jewish. And I think it's not the normal take. I think the predominant take might be, let's just write this person off, at least from the literary corners, where people are too scared to touch that subject. So they just stay away from it so as not to be impugned for whatever they may believe. I just can't. It's just too gorgeous. And when I think about proof rock, it's just in my soul, just like my puppies in my soul. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, there's some things, or Shakespeare, like, what are you going to do? 
You know, right. Right. this isn't to say that I'm for a Confederate statue. War criminals are war criminals. That's not the same thing as saying this work of art is. And, you know, who's to, I also think the reason why maybe I am that way is here we are, you and I sort of so happy that we're having these conversations on our podcast. But, you know, in another era, people would maybe look at people like us and say, you realize that, you know, what is it? How many hundreds of millions of children are living in poverty right now? Right. And why aren't you dedicating more of your time to that? You trivial, frivolous, self-indulgent people. Yeah. I'll take no, that. I admire that ability of yours. I've got it too. The critic <laughs> can always find. And I could agree with that. It makes sense. I choose what I choose to do within the confines of what I truly believe. I don't rationalize away stuff that I think is not right or not wrong. And I say the reason what I, maybe this is a rationalization, but I just say I already have obligations to the people around me that I'm not keeping. That's not really yeah, important. Yeah, but it's like, yeah. my kids will be lucky if I feed them lunch. No, I did feed my kids. No, that's not true. My husband will feed them. But hey, yeah. It's a know. good joke, though. Um, <laughs> your humanity is radiant in all of your endeavors. I can, by doing this podcast, model a certain kind of humanity and interest that is genuine, then I hope that might make some small contribution to somebody else. Maybe give them a way to think differently about a white guy in America. I'm bringing my Mr. Rogers vibe and I'm yeah. very <laughs> interested in everybody and friends with everybody, you know. And I th that cannot be, what's the word, undervalue this idea of how to be a person in the world, the level of sort of service and anxiety that is on these kids today and um you know to be saying life's complicated there's a big sinkhole waiting for all of us at the other end of it yep and that's why i think whenever you think about these horrific stories about these sinkholes in the middle of someone's living room and they're watching tv one minute and the last thing oof, they're down the sinkhole and it seems horrifying it's like oh they were there and just, her desk is there and she's gone but we don't get that choice and for some people, the fear of that unknown, there's not a fear of the unknown from before you were alive, but there's a fear of lack of consciousness after, because here we have it. And I think for a lot of people, if they've given any thought to it, which I hope that they would maybe as a child going, whoa, whoa when they go through their death phase or whatever, for a lot of people, the questions are answered by just adhering to a re religious doctrine. And I think I've mentioned this in the podcast. I was talking with someone who, the, the, a woman who is a hospice nurse who wrote about that experience. And I wasn't raised with an answer to what happens next. And I think part of it is Judaism doesn't have one. Or according to the rabbis I asked, he's like, well, different people, rabbis have different views. I'm like, well, of course. Right. Yeah. Thanks right. a lot. You know, that, that's why I think <laughs> I might be Jewish. Were you raised in a faith tradition or? Of no sort. So really my parents, they split at five. I was with both of them. But my dad is like a hardcore literature guy, but he comes from nothing in the Middle West. He discovered this as an undergrad and he changed his life after the Vietnam War. So Incredible. he was, yeah. So he was like, wait, 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 where in the Midwest? Where? I was born in Muncie, Indiana. And you know, I'm from Michigan, right? Like I'm a Midwesterner. I need to recognize Michigan as more Midwestern. I think of Midwest as like Iowa, where my family's from, Nebraska, even Missouri. Do you include Ohio? I need to. Oh, yeah. come on, Sherwood Anderson. Oh, no, Ohio, come yeah, on. Yeah, Ohio, for sure, for well, sure. Well, I'm just north of Ohio, so you yeah. have to. That, anyway, I'm, so your father was deeply into literature, you said. Like, or he read to me Theodore Rusky poems when I was like five, six. He read Huckleberry Finn and, oh. you know, all of it. And yeah. he was problematic. He had a temper. 
I think he had suffered some abuse and maybe some bipolar stuff that was undiagnosed, but he really did rain a lot of attention on me. What was your father's work? Great question. He was like a PhD student forever. He was in economics at UT Austin. Uh-huh. And then he was a GI Bill to like, he had like another couple degrees at UT Austin, philosophy and literature. You know, he's like a GI Bill guy. Yeah. And then he was a teacher. This was your father. What was your mother? Did she have a, what was her philosophy or faith? Uh, great question. When my folks divorced, she went to law school. That was her longtime dream. So she then became a lawyer. I would just visit her a couple times every summer and then every Christmas. Maybe we went to church occasionally, but there was no prayer. Nothing like so. But was there ethics? There must have been some sort of when you were witnessing something in the world and it didn't seem right. What was the explanation you got? I didn't. Your questions are hitting on stuff that are really don't ever share that much. I got all, everything I learned was from reading. I read mm. every book in the library. And you know how you could feel the adult speaking to you through the story and yeah. giving you feelings about mm -hmm. bigotry and doing the right thing and all that and how yes. to have honor or something like that? Yes. That's where I got everything I know. My parents really did not instruct me, nor did set a very good example. If I'm being perfectly frank, they're not So terrible. where'd you get, did you, was it the school library or the public library where you got your books? Both. Did <laughs> they have the crinkly covers back then that when you, were they covered in that kind of plastic stuff? Or yes, that yes. The thick, but it was more of a thick plastic is my recollection. I know this is your show, but do you mind telling me? I'm curious who those authors that you think of when you think about giving you those teachings or pointing to things for you. I love your question. A series of books called The Great Brain Books. Did you ever read those? I want to write this down. I think someone else mentioned this to me, but I'm not sure if I did. Okay. I think it's Louis Fitzhugh, maybe. Wait, no. Louise Fitzhugh wrote The Great Brain Books? See, that's why I think I'm not right on that. No, no, because she wrote Harriet the Spy, The Long Secret, and Nobody's Family is Going to Change. And this, she's my favorite author. One second. I love her. She did not write The Great Brain Books. It was uh -huh. uh, somebody else. But also, those books you cited were of yes. great importance to me, Harriet the Spy. I, oh, it's John Dennis Fitzgerald. That's why you, the name. Well, you knew Harriet the Spy too? I read everything. I didn't care if it was about girls, boys, anything. Me I read the, the books about like the person who set off fireworks and blinded themselves and then had to go through. The, I read everything. I read a book like if I was in the flipping supermarket with my mother and I saw a book, she, you know, the little round books thing that was probably people trying to teach you about Jesus. And there was a woman who jumped into a river, got paralyzed, and learned to paint with her toes. I fucking read that. How could you not forget that either? Oh, my God. Wow. This is why social media is so dangerous, because my addiction to that, and that's another reason why I have, I know this is a super pivot, having my uh, podcast means I actually will read and not just social media. When you read for a guest, I'd be curious to know how you approach that. Are you going in there, you got your like 10 or 20 questions all written out in advance, or? So my top secret method, if the book is on Audible, I'll sometimes listen and also have the paper. That allows me to do all the other things I'm supposed to be doing around my house, like occasionally sweep the floor or brush my hair or drive to school or whatever. Sometimes, though, like I'm looking at a book now where someone had given me the galleys. And so that's what I read because it was early and I didn't have it. Um, so I, I read the book and I don't do it the way I might do it. If I were doing a book review, I would be like taking notes and being all tense about it. Instead, I read it and I just let it sink in. And then if I do my interview on Thursday, I send an email called run of show. 
and I say to the person, these are my suggestions. We may or may not touch on any of these topics. Some of these are emergency questions. And I said, the way it's supposed to feel, though, is if you say something, I'm going to follow that thread. And so what that means is I have, for example, see this poster where it just says the great. Yep. That was where I was writing the great brain down. But if I were, if we were talking, I would, if there was something I wanted to talk about later, which I'm not doing right now, I would write it down so I could return to it if something comes up. I also would have on my screen the email I sent to them with a list of questions. And my format usually is to begin with some sort of a what's going on. And so it was funny, though, you just may maybe listen to the Michael Lewis interview, but I yeah. didn't realize I was going to say to him, oh, so you write? And like, he went with it. Like, yes, that was funny. I knew. I felt right away. <laughs> it just, it, it emerged of the moment. I could feel right. it. Yeah. A lot of it does. And also one thing I say to the people I'm interviewing and I write this, I underline it. I said, it's anything off limits. Yeah. And I underline that. Because sometimes I'm asking someone, I was interviewing the guy who had survived the Pulse nightclub shooting. I wasn't going to talk about the event right away, but I want to make sure, is there anything I shouldn't talk about? Or I think it's important because I'm not being an investigative journalist. We are having a conversation. Right. The same way I would if someone was in my home. Or they invited me to their home. And this goes back to something you and I were talking about, modeling how to be in the world and are these ideas right or wrong. I'm trying to get to a better understanding of their process. I'm trying to actually help them highlight the points they make in their book for people who might want to buy it. But also there are a lot of people who either don't have time or can't afford to read. And I want them to learn a little bit about what this person wants to share with the world. So I want to make sure some of those points come out. So that that's my agenda. Right. And I'm also always very happy if someone says, oh, no one has ever asked me that before. I, I'm That's the the happiest I right, ever am. Right. Or when they say, I don't think I've ever talked about this before. Yes, the way you did. <laughs> and I'm laughing because the reason why it's so funny is because the podcast marries two aspects of myself. One is a new one. One's very old. The new one is my husband always says to me, how do people just tell you stuff? And he notices, and I didn't notice that if I have something to ask, I don't typically ask a direct question. I'll say something about myself or I'll make a random comment. And the next thing you know, someone's told me their life story. And it's because people really want to be seen and they want to be heard. And I really want to hear and see them. Yeah. And I find it interesting. And I'm glad when it works out for the podcast. The other thing, though, is when I said to you a while ago, we both were sharing this love of reading. When I was in elementary school, I had a friend who went to a different elementary school that was much more experimental. And I remember my friend went there and I was up to my mother, like, I, I want to go there because I heard that you didn't really have to do classes. You could just sit in the corner and read books. And then my mother was like, I don't want you doing that. You also do things like learn math and stuff like that. And then, of course, my math scores are higher on the SAT than my reading scores. But my mother would only come to find out recently. I found out literally this summer, and my mother is 84, that she told my kids, her grandkids, that she was the only person who'd been accepted to University of Michigan, she thought, who hadn't even taken algebra in high school. Wow. So what if I had been left alone just to read books? And I realized that I should leave myself alone and let myself read books. And that's what this gift to me, this podcast is for me. Oh, I love that. I also love that your mother, that's so human of her, right? So that's probably her sense of imposter syndrome at University of Michigan. I'm walking around here with all these kids. I have no algebra. So I'm going to make sure my daughter has some algebra, something like that. It's just super funny. I mean, my 23-year-old is in grad school for astroparticle physics, of course, and That's doesn't like to read. Yeah. She makes fun of me because I was an English major. She, she's not a big fan of reading. She, she's a more of a podcast listener person. Right. She's totally into math and 
both of my kids are great, but they're not the same as me. Yeah. And the best thing you can actually do is whoever your kids are, see them for who they are, support them and figure out how can they fulfill their dreams while also not hurting other people and do more good than bad in the world. That's my goal for my kids. And at first, again, I was freaked out because I'm like, how can this, how can I have a child who doesn't want to read all the time? The old, the younger kid reads all the time, like reads way too much stuff. Like he fills us in at dinner about what's going on in the world and knows more than I do about many topics. So you never know what's going to happen. That's fascinating. And as I think about it, if I try to take my smartest approach to all that, when you're describing your kids, either the oldest or youngest, you and I are products of our time. We are shaped by the things we experienced and how we yep. responded to them. So we can't really know for sure what a 23-year-old is or 10 years on from that, what sure. they're supposed to be for 2033 or whatever we're at. It My is- 16-year-old tells me, it pains me when I think about it. They, they said that ever since elementary school and throughout high school, all the adults would come in and say, climate change is really serious. And it's going to be on you guys to fix it. And I think adults think, oh, it's just important to teach you. But the way my kid took it, takes everything really literally and seriously, was like, oh, my God, I'm a kid. You guys fucked this shit up. And now you're leaving it on me? Yeah. And the level of anxiety that they had. And then my older one, which I didn't know, is during the Iraq War. So she was born in 2000. And so during the second Iraq War in 2003, she remembers thinking there's a war. Are they going to come here and bomb they, whoever it is, bomb us? Yes. Like, and, and I sometimes think there's a lot I don't talk to my kids about because you think don't bring something up if it's going to traumatize them. Or the kids didn't tell me. And, and they know, I said, I'm so sorry that I didn't tell you it wasn't your job to fix climate change or- A little or bit more about like the Iraq war. I mean, yes. really helpful for me to hear this. You're actually the first person who has brought up the perspective of younger folks or their kids in relation to the Iraq war, which I think those forever wars are at the heart. They are the engine that is driving the insanity we're experiencing now in our culture. And nobody is really acknowledging that. And they want when the war was transpiring either. My kids have never known a time when there wasn't war. Precisely. And For people not to understand what that's like, you know, we can remember pre-9-11, just a whole different world. And then that happened. And then there was a lot of strong talk coming out of Fox News, scary talk. I was in D.C. for a while. There was no duct tape or plastic to buy the hardware store because people had put it in their windows because they had been deceived into thinking Saddam was going to hit us soon. So you just think about what's a kid thinking during all that and how does it affect their psyche? Yeah. I I would also say, I think when there's different developmental periods and I've asked other people, but I think eight and nine and 10 is when you go, oh, wait, I'm a person in the world and you start worrying about your life and your death. And then 16 and 17 is when you become who you're going to be. Right. It takes a while to figure out all the other pieces of it, but I think that's really who your cores are. Chorus. And yes, your behavior can change around the margins, but if you really think about who you are, I think that's true. Well, my younger kid, was nine years old when Donald Trump was elected. And all the kids at her school were crying because the parents were just upset. Yeah. And that kid has watched that. And when that happened, my older kid was 16 and was taking a class at, at her high school, public high school, on genocide and the Holocaust. And that's what she was studying. And they were talking about the mobilization of Hitler youth and these mercenary armies. And so this is happening in my house all at the same time. Wow. So I think about my kids 
and they're no different than what other kids go through. But I think adults, I think we, and this goes sort of why we do things like the podcast, adults owe it to themselves, to their kids and to the society to find joy, whether yeah. that's an art for you or if it's in sports. Some people are really into certain house projects or the family likes to go cross-country skiing or for people who don't eat, have kids, that means making sure you make time for your friends. I think it's dawned on me that times of peace are more rare than times of war, that famine and oppression have always been with us. Right. And finding the balance of having joy in the world because I, I know there are some people that I meet who because I don't want to be perceived as having plenty or having joy because I know other people are suffering. Right. Always make sure that everyone around them knows how hard their fucking life is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, That's interesting. And That's I'm an like, interesting no. phenomenon. Yeah, yeah. And it, and it bothers the fuck out of me. And, and I'm not a Stepford wife, but I tend to have a cheerful attitude. And I think sometimes people like that think, you know, she's fake. Things are bad. Why don't she show what life is really like? And I'm thinking, my life has a lot of really good things. Right. And I'm not going to center the small amount of misery I have and take away from people who really have it. And I just find that there's like, just have joy, just have fun, have the balance, help others, make things better. But when I have been sad, or had a really hard place, seeing other people who were happy made me feel better, yeah. not people who were miserable. It makes perfect sense. And I try to get up when I get on the mic and just have a certain attitude. Definitely not fake. I mean, if I want to cry, I've cried. I've cried many times on this podcast. So, but there is something can be uplifting and it can be a hard one optimism. I cherish people's wise optimism that yes, there is so much tragedy that could even strike my own self in two seconds. But in the meantime, the best thing I can do that is in service to others and myself is to proactively, as you say, pursue joy. That's just a wiser way. It, it, more good things but will happen. But I want to be clear. I think you know this. I would never say to someone, perk up. Oh, be no, happy. no, no, no. Yeah, 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 yeah. I don't mean that. I mean, being present, being empathic, but you don't need to say, I know you have a bad, let me tell you this bad thing happened to me. You can just be, that's hard. How can I help you? Yes. And distract them with something fun. It could be the small thing, taking them out for ice cream, figuring out ways to let people who are I don't mean deeply depressed, clinically depressed, because then you're helping them find a therapist, helping them find medication. You think people should substitute themselves for the medical profession. But I'm saying there's so much possibilities for joy. For me, it's always art, though. For me, it's always music and art that make me see this is what people could be doing. We could all be creating beautiful things. People could be striving toward excellence or watching others and supporting them in that instead of fighting over stupid shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But there are people who just want to, I think there are people who just need to dominate and put other people down. I think about other animals that do the one-upmanship. And I don't know if it's nature or nurture because I don't want to blame moms and dads. I grew but... up around a ton of that, you know? And yeah, it, me too. I'm actually, uh, I feel stupid to say this, but like I'm 6'4 and like 240 pounds. So... You're 6'4? Yeah. So I'm like a big guy and I was a big guy in Texas and the South all the time with those guys. But I right. had such a different outlook. The other thing, the truth about me is like, if anybody is even near six foot, I'm like a horse. Everybody looks bigger to me. It's a weird thing um, <laughs> to be being like that. I guess it's a little bit like that Linklater uh, film, Dazed and Confused, that quarterback who was actually friends with everybody and was always trying to put the fires out. Okay. And I always felt like I could do that. I had no desire to 
hurt or maim or dominate like that. Me either. I mean, you know, one of the reasons I went in the Marine Corps, I think a lot of us had, had suffered from different kinds of abuse at home or whatever. And we just wanted to make sure no one can hurt us again. So yeah. I was really learning how to do those things, but I had no desire to. Honestly, I came out of the Marine Corps with a bigger sense of humanity and love for different kinds of people I would have never met. Because of the camaraderie among the group? Oh my gosh, the humanity is like nothing I've ever encountered. Nothing. These guys Where are, were you? Where were you based? I was at Camp Pendleton, California. Well, I was in San Diego for boot camp. And then the, they send you. So I was a year into college at UT Austin. I went into the recruiter and I said, I want to be a ground pounder, a grunt. I'd seen too much of those Vietnam films that we all inherited, right, from our parents. And he said, well, look, you've got like good grades. We could put you in front of a computer. I said, no, no, I want to be a grunt. So they sent me into that. So what's the school of infantry? I was showering next to ex-gangbangers from L.A., ex-white supremacists with tattoos on their backs. One of my best friends was a guy who'd been dealing drugs in uh, Santa Cruz, California, living out in the back of his car. He was a surfer. And he said, drug deal went wrong. Someone was coming for him. He went to that recruiter, signed up, boom, jumped through the portal. That's really what you find in the Marine Corps in the enlisted level. It was a lot of people. It's like the movie Volunteers, yes. right? With John Candy and yeah, yeah, Tom yeah. Hanks. So, oh, my God. You know, the humanity of these people. I had never met these people. Have, are any of your stories, which I have not read, about this experience? The first book was. It was called Dear okay. Mr. President. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, okay, um, I'm going to get that. Awesome. So that was life-changing for me. Those people and their humanity and their love was there for me when I needed it. I was the only child. We lived in a barracks with 70 guys. We all went to the bathroom, showered together, lived together. And I think psychologically, you might really appreciate this. At the very end of the three-month of boot camp, they say, gather around in a circle. We haven't been able to talk or anything during that time. And they say, we're going to have a gong show. And everyone here is entitled to stand up and do their impressions of the drill instructors or some of the main characters of the platoon that we've been living with. And you see all these people get up like, oh, can I really do this? Like, were they, they afraid? No, they mimicked it perfectly. It was clear they had been having conversations for months and ingesting all these different voices and people. And I laughed so hard, tears just pouring down my face. And I still can't put my finger on exactly why that was so profound, but it was profound. It's the deepest I've ever been embedded with a group of people before. We want to be part of community. And I think what you're saying is a really beautiful experience. And it's why I think people end up in gangs, why people end up in fraternities or sororities or on teams or in a certain kind of group chat. And, and the question is, can we recreate that in a way that is fun and funny and fulfills those needs for young people more than anything else? I guess school is supposed to do that for people. But then what is that Bob Dylan line? 20 years of schooling and they put you on the day shift. Break people apart from all their communities right. and say, go achieve, yeah. go have a nuclear family. Well, like, that feels really like a break. It feels like a disconnect. It's true. But I think, I, or it can be. I think for us, though, I think it was worse because we didn't have social media. You left high school and goodbye. I mean, Actually, but I have all these letters. I bet you have boxes. I don't even, I haven't opened the letters that you wrote back and forth to friends and things from that era. I do. I moved to Seoul, Korea for five years. I was teaching at Princeton. They offered me a tenure track position at this fancy university in Seoul. I was living in a high rise in the center of Seoul. Wow. Yeah. Living like a prince. Yes. Yeah. In, in a culture that I had so much to learn from and the food is my favorite. And I had sure. these incredible students that had never taken creative writing. 
And in the course of that move, in the five years I spent over there, some boxes of things did get lost, sadly. Why did you decide to come back? Thank you for asking. I don't know. I think I lost my mind a little bit. Well, okay. So what happens is this. <laughs> yeah, I can see. I, what did Gertrude Stein say? She liked being alone in her English, but maybe that was too much for you. Yeah. Well, it was wonderful for a while. I learned how to be in a room with people and not understand what they were saying. Well, by the end of that time, if you had asked me, what did they just say? What did they do? I'd be able to tell you. I was able to read body and there's a part mm-hmm. of my brain that was taking the language in. So this was 2012. I'd been there for five years. I was not on social media like you. I waited. And I was just at this point where I'd already seen a couple cycles of my students come through and go out in the world. Then they would actually, a couple went to Harvard Law School. They would go on and have like global success. Yeah. And I looked around and there's a certain kind of white guy that like goes to Asia and stays there forever. And I'm not saying that's bad, but I was at that point. Who are some of the guests that you've had on your show that have like really lit up your heart? I've loved every guest. I think one of the really special interviews was with Connie Schultz. Yeah. I just feel such a deep connection to her. And even though I focused on her novel, The Daughters of Erie Town, they was so autobiographical that it felt like, I knew her much better as a person. And she and I, I think we became friendly through social media at the time when, do you remember back when Mitt Romney was running for office and he said he had binders filled with women, meaning he was yeah. going to have a diverse cabinet or whatever. And so then all these binder groups started up on Facebook and one of them was so-called binders full of women writers. Right. And there was a time when people would talk with each other there. And I think she and I connected there briefly. And then I found out she'd read my first book on the financial crisis and said that she'd also shared it with uh, Sharon Brown. But, um, you know, talking with her, because when I gave her my show notes, she was like, couldn't believe the kind, that I'd really read the book deeply and seen things in it that maybe she hadn't seen. I also, because she caught me off guard, I'm remembering she, we talked a little bit about a children's book she has coming out. Right. And uh, there was a part I did completely unscripted where I realized something about myself in that conversation that was pretty profound. But was it I related think, to the fact that in that episode you described? You wanted to be a singer, I believe. Yes, it was. yes. You weren't able, you got cut from the team or something like that. Yeah, and it was yeah, really yeah, traumatic. Yeah. yeah, that's very true. Because the book was about bullying or about trolling. It's like called Lola and the Troll. And I think it's coming out in early 2025. And I think that the concept was being teased as a child. She didn't want to be teased. So I've seen kids that get teased. They just run around. They ignore it. Right. The people who absorb things like me and others. And me, sensitive know, people. Right. Lola, this kid, or too sensitive, maybe we are. I don't know. It is what it is. But Lola, I guess when this one bully or this troll would say, your hair is too big, she put a hat on, or your hat's too stupid, she did. So whatever it was to try to erase anything that could be criticized and thereby erasing herself. And there was something, I think, that I don't know if it's in the book or some conversation of putting all these things in a box somewhere, right? right? And then realizing, you know what, I can take them out. And I just thought, wow, what did I put in that box? And we got into this profound conversation about that. And I think now, I, oh my God, I've never talked about this. Now you're going to get this. I realize now, I think maybe why that resonated is I think in the movie Flashdance that came out when we were in high school, right. there was a scene when Jennifer Beals, I think, was performing at this quasi strip club place. And one of the ladies, and she was young in the film, and she's just doing it to try to support herself while she becomes a professional modern dancer or ballet dancer. Her artistic dream. Her dream. And there was a woman there in the dressing room who said something. I don't know if she had a box that she, oh, I don't open that anymore. I put put my dreams away. And it was like, 
at that time, I just felt like I was going to weep. There was always, I think when I was young, there was something I understood that I was forsaking because of either needing to be independent or make money or be realistic. I always felt like I was sacrificing something. And, and I wonder whether that echoed for me with Connie. Similar to when this is now the connection for me is the, the, the George Bernard Shaw play Heartbreak House, which I think someone should do. Are we, have you seen this play? Or do I don't you know believe it? so. I feel like it's oh one God. I should have, but I don't know it. Well, someone should basically do a, a modern day version of it. But there's a character in the play who, like, I mean, no, no one is who they seem to be. And there's a character, everyone's spending the time, I guess, in someone's, it's like someone, some wealthy ca- former ship captain's home. And they're all there for like a weekend event, right? Which creates the setting for the what's going on in it. And there's a young woman who's betrothed to someone she doesn't really love, but he's wealthy. And she really isn't interested in him, but she was going to settle because she needs money. And then there was some point, I think someone was trying to convince her not to do it. She was like, you love the arts and you love theater and you love this stuff. How can you do this? And she goes, basically, my soul needs these things, but I need money so I can enjoy them or whatever. I can't remember what that is. It was a beautiful line from, and of course, Shaw is a you know, famous socialist and so on. Right. And so I know, I realize, talk about writers trying to point to you. I think what's really hard is saying, can you live your dream or part of your dream, which parts can you live? Like, I'm not, I, I don't sing well, so that's not going to happen. But I love to read. Right. So I can bring that back into my life. Right. right. And that kind of thing. It makes perfect sense. I think I always knew, in theory, you could choose to be whatever you wanted. But the problem is, I was such a people pleaser. Yeah. That I thought, my parents always said, yeah, I was the one who drove myself. They said, we don't chill out. Get a few bees. It's fine. But I was like, one time they had said, we don't ask you to do what you can just do the best you can and the be- i always felt the best i could was perfection yeah it was very fucked up right and so i always felt like i always believed i was a lump of clay and had no real center and that if i wanted to achieve something i could just make myself into the thing i needed to do to achieve relatable and i became an achievement machine and i think it was when i was in i think i was an associate general counsel of fidelity and i was traveling the world doing stuff i was a head lawyer in fixed income i was actually a vp on the fi- on the Fidelity Fixed Income Funds. I was 37 or something at the time. I could afford to make myself look how I wanted and buy stuff. And I was utterly miserable. I was in a very challenging relationship. There was a person who had great qualities, but we were just not matched right. Right. And I just was in a situation where I realized this was the best it could get. I felt then I was a failure. And I was seeing a therapist and she said, how can you say that? And I was like, I would go to the Harvard Law School reunions and the p- panels they would have of the person who was a writer or whatever. I was like, I want to be that. Right. How did I get into this? Yeah. And I thought I could write, you know, on the weekend. I think for me, I'm always putting myself back in that prison and always having to set myself free. Yeah. And I feel really lucky because um, I have the ability to do these things that I do. But I honestly believe I want to support the dreams of others. When people reach out to me, people I don't even know well, I try to help them. Yeah, yeah. And I think. Everyone has the right to achieve something they dreamed of. There's nothing more fulfilling. Like I could die happy. I still have many things I want to do. But when I teach with my kids, with my school, with people around me, I want others to have that feeling of it was worth it to take the risks I took because I achieved this. I want other people to feel that there's nothing better in the world than that. I love that. I think you just articulated something that I feel deeply and can um, relate to. But I'm not sure I've articulated it to myself. The desire to make people feel or understand that the risks you took, which were 
mammoth. I mean, you're in the VP conversation. You're like the head of one and of I the. Quit. Yeah, you yeah, I quit. quit. Go teach as a contract faculty member taking several hundred thousand dollar pay cut. You came through a really fascinating journey and you've come through with this hard won wisdom. And now you're in your place. You're having conversations the way you want to on your podcast, et cetera. I think when I tell the story the way I tell it, it makes it sound like I was, you know, in a prison and miserable. I kind of love, just something nice about being in the belly of the beast, yeah. right? Like I'm super curious, like what's going on here? And I learned about how certain things work. And I miss some of that because they're really smart, interesting people anywhere you go. And I will say, what I always found funny is when I was in finance, I would talk about poetry and literature with people in finance. And the minute I got involved with people in the arts, like my husband being an artist, the first thing he was talking about, we talk about poetry now, obviously, but like financing stuff, money is a thing artists need. Poetry is a thing people in finance need. So I found I could find a home anywhere I went. But yeah, I'm, I'm happy where I am now. I'm grateful for the life I led. And I'm especially glad I came through some of the darker times in my life. Is there anything you want to say about Kurt Vonnegut I love Kurt Vonnegut. I'm so glad you and I met because you recommended that I read God Bless You, Mr. Rosewater, which is now, I think I had read it before, but had forgotten. Just utterly brilliant. And Vonnegut, someone who holds up. I'll also say that because I live in Northampton, when I quit my job and I was teaching and I was hanging out at a coffee shop writing in my journal, I ran into Nanny Vonnegut his daughter. Wow. She lives here. Yeah. She's a painter. She's pretty cool. And I remember having some conversations with her about her dad. She's pretty awesome. Oh, and I've heard stories about him. I don't know if it's true. I can't remember. But not from her, but from someone else. There was some event he was at. Maybe it was at the local art gallery and he went out for a cigarette and it just didn't come back. Nice. I just love him. I love his work. What do you think about Substack? And are there three that you would recommend that you love? As for Substack, I only started in March and I'm trying to get my sea legs. I have a, a newsletter called Money and Gossip and I, it used to be called like Follow the Money, but I went with Money and Gossip because it was a line from Succession, which is an utterly inspired series. Oh, the writing. And there's this line that everything with this guy, Lucas, I think is talking to Shiv about like trying to work a room of politicians to make sure some deal of his that he wants to go through goes through. And he said, he, you know, I used to be intimidated by people, but then I realized everything's just money and gossip. And I thought, yeah, that, that covers yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, depending on how you define both. Uh, and but you're yeah, super so in informed of- and, and you know a ton about these topics, but you also bring your warmth, humor, and humanity to your writing on- Oh, you're so nice. On all of your social feeds and on Substack. I'm very anchored in how people experience the knowledge in the world around them. I don't start with concepts. Even if I have arguments, I always try to anchor them in human lives. As for the subtext, some of the writers I really like, Lauren Huff, who writes Bad Read. Yeah. I had her on the show and I love her voice. She's from Austin and she was the one who did that Cable Guy article. It was so funny. And then she wrote a gorgeous memoir called Leaving Isn't the Hardest Thing. I just love Lauren's voice, Lauren Huff. She's a little bit like a little Mark Twain, a little Dorothy Allison. I think she is utterly inspired, incredible writer. So I encourage everyone to read that. I love my friend Joyce Vance, who has civil discourse. Yes. Because she sets me up for the week. And Joyce is a former federal prosecutor. Talk about lovely person. She's like an Alabaman Connie Schultz. So she raises chickens. She used to dye yarn. And she was a federal prosecutor. And now she's got a great podcast called, I'm wearing a, the shirt that says Sisters-in-Law. Cool, cool. But Joyce is always very well informed about the legal issues for the week. So if I miss out on that, I need to look at that. I like my friend Dean Abadala because I think he takes 
a stand on news and moral issues. He has his own podcast and radio show, The Dean Abadala Show, but you'll sometimes see him on MSNBC. Yeah. Someone who's utterly brilliant as a, a legal mind is like Steve Vladek. Yes. He's at UT Austin. Yeah. And also just a lovely person. I had him on the show because of his book on the shadow docket, which is an excellent book explaining that concept. I just think Substack's a lot of fun. And where are you? I'm at? on Cape Cod. Oh, you're near me. Yeah. I'm in Western Mass. Yeah. How close are you to the water? Stone's throw. There are like six or eight beaches within walking distance, something crazy like that. Well, water is everything, right? Do you go for walks and, or do you just look from your window at the water these days? I go for walks a lot. I've lived in Northampton since 96, so that's maybe roots, right? I love Northampton. That is like such a special place. A lot of writers, both children's book authors and others, a lot of people who work with their hands, yeah. wood turners. And my husband is an artist, but he's part of this artist books industry where people like actually still make, you know, he has, does not letterpress printing anymore, but he does copper plate printing and woodblock printing. It's just such a cool place. And you know what? I have another friend there, Andrew Leland, who just put a book out called The Country of the Blind. He has been going slowly blind. He's been on a lot oh. of media. He, is it nonfiction? It's nonfiction. It is ingenious. Beautiful. It okay. is unlike any book I've ever read. I originally knew him as the editor at The Believer in McSweeney's when I was at McSweeney's. Oh, you were McSweeney? Yeah, for 10 plus uh, years. So you're a funny guy. Yeah, me and Dave Eggers are tight. My yeah. friend Maura Quinn sometimes writes for them, so yeah. Oh, you're friends with her? She's cool yeah. on Twitter. Okay, she's very funny. Yeah, we did Tax March together. Okay. Yeah, she's awesome. She's a po good policy person. With the Country of the Blind, I just wrote this on my paper, yeah, and Andrew, Andrew Leland. Andrew Leland, he's right there in Northampton, and he actually okay. did a podcast that is very cool for McSweeney's called The Organist. I've heard of that. So this place is pretty chill in that way. People from Berkeley think it reminds them of a smaller Berkeley. People from Austin, Texas yes. said it's a little bit like that. That's so. the vibe I had when I went. There was like a couple of used bookstores at that time that just had an incredible selection. Still are. Except now it's a lot of cannabis shops because we were like one of the first towns in Massachusetts to have them. Anything else you'd like to add? Any note of optimism to the world? What was the thing John Irving said in Hotel New Hampshire? Keep passing the open windows. Thank you from the bottom of my heart for being on the show. You should come out and visit us. Okay, so that was amazing, right? So now is when you go sign up for Jen Tobbs podcast, Booked Up with Jen Tobb, and you can go to wherever you get your podcast, Apple Podcast app, Spotify. What I would recommend is going over to Substack and subscribing to Jen's newsletter, Money and Gossip, because that way you're going to get the written, more boutique, customized version of each podcast episode. Plus, you get to hear about whatever is on Jen's mind whenever she feels like letting you know. So how could you not want to go sign up for that newsletter? Now, in addition to that, I've put a show Link in the show notes so that you can go buy Jen's book, Big Dirty Money, Making White Collar Criminals Pay at Bookshop. I've also put a link so that you can go directly to the website for Jen's podcast. In addition to that, I've also put links to all of Jen's social media handles in the show notes. And if you want to come say hi to me, or if you have not yet subscribed to the Kurt Vonnegut radio podcast newsletter, go over to Substack and correct that mistake. 
and consider it your good deed for the day to future generations of your family. And if you want to become a paid subscriber, help me get groceries so that I can eat while I make podcast episodes for you. Click paid subscriber. And if you can't afford to at this time, I understand. Been there. Then maybe go over to Kurt Von Get Radio on Apple Podcast app or Spotify and give a five-star rating to the show because that's a huge help as well. Stay safe out there, people, and I'll see you next time. Peace.